0: This Friday, October 9th, the Nobel Committee will announce the recipient of the 2015 Nobel Peace Prize. Now, I'm on a brief paternity leave this week, so I thought this would be an opportune moment to repost my conversation with Victor Ochin, who was nominated for the 2015 Prize by the same organization that once nominated previous laureates Desmond Tutu, Martin Luther King Jr., Jimmy Carter, and Doug Hammarskjold. Now, Victor is not as well known as these other winners, but that may change after Friday. He's a civic leader in northern Uganda who founded a peace and reconciliation NGO called the African Youth Initiative Network, which works principally on behalf of victims of the Lord's Resistance Army, or LRA. Victor is also a personal friend. We met for the first time in Ethiopia seven years ago and have hung out and shared meals with each other on no fewer than three different continents. And he tells me that I was the first journalist to ever tell his story with a piece I published in the Huffington Post about seven years ago. And it's a very powerful story, which he tells in great detail in this episode. He grew up in IDP camps in northern Uganda and even lost a brother to the LRA. But throughout it all, he's maintained a commitment to peace and justice. And in this conversation, Victor tells the story of his childhood, of starting an NGO, and of how being the first Ugandan and youngest African ever nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize has affected his life and work. Now, this conversation was recorded in March, and since then, Victor and I have seen each other. Uh, and it was clear that this nomination really energized him and energized his organization in pretty profound ways. I mean, you know, it may be a long shot uh, for him to win this prize, but the effect of his nomination has been pretty profound. So here it is my conversation with Victor Ochin. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube.
1: The only bit of noise you'll hear will be the chicken crying and a bit of uh, birds, but everything's okay. Hey. There's no car. There's no motorcycle. It sets the
0: mood. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'd like to just kind of kick off by just talking about the, the Nobel Peace Prize nomination, which, by the way, congratulations. That is amazing. Um, I, I'm on Team Victor,
1: so <laughs> I mean it's
0: great. To, it's so great to hear your voice. Um, I guess we haven't seen each other in a couple of years, but I always love speaking yeah. with you. I was yeah, so yeah. I was so um, you know not surprised, but I was gratified to see that Desmond Tutu nominated you for the Nobel Peace Prize. Can you just like explain how did that happen? How did
1: you come to learn that he nominated you? Just tell that story. Actually, I, I was nominated by the American Friends Service Committee, the Quakers. Uh, the Quakers, yes. Yeah. I was nominated by the Quakers. And then uh, the Quakers called me, I think it was on the 27th of uh, January, when they informed me that they had some news they wanted to tell me. And I, they thought I would be happy with the news. And I was in The Hague, I was in the Netherlands, attending the first initial appearance of uh, Dominic Nguyen, one of the Ugandans, indicted LRA commanders. So, and then they did inform me about... Uh, about the need to talk to me. When I came to Uganda, I was busy running up and down trying to organize victims uh, of war in northern Uganda to participate in the ICC proceeding, and those who are willing to take part in so many ways, and also to create a lot of awareness around the international criminal justice. So when I sat with them on the 7th of February, they told me that I I was meeting with a team from American Friends Service Committee, and then they told me they have been tracking my work for the last four years. Uh, They've been seeing what we've been doing in Northern Uganda, supporting the victims of human rights violations, the victims of war. And then they listed so many uh, work we have been doing and I was surprised to know because I don't know any of these guys. I never met them even up to now, I've not known them yet. And then they told me that I, we have tracked your work for the last four years and we do think the work you've done is quite amazing. It stands out for humanity. It's the work for peace building, and it's the work that brings about dignity, restored dignity, and provides justice for the people who are vulnerable in the society. And for that reason, we are glad to tell you that you have been nominated by the American Friends Service Committee for the Nobel Peace Prize 2015. And I was shocked. (laughs) I, I was so surprised to hear this, and I thought, Uh, They didn't mean me. They didn't mean even maybe the Nobel Peace Prize. But then when they justified why they do think I deserve this, stating all that I've been doing, and also they gave their history of the people they have nominated before. Who who does that include? uh, Their nomination, because themselves, American Friends Service Committee, they also won uh, in Mm 1940-something. And then in their nomination included Gandhi, uh, who did not win, though, But, uh, you know, they nominated uh, Martin Luther King, Jr., who won, uh, you know, the prize sometimes back. They also nominated Desmond Tutu, and they nominated also President Jimmy Carter, and then the the, uh, the first UN Secretary General, among other people whom they have nominated and they have won. So what was so surprising to me, how would they consider me a known or a less known person from deep in northern Uganda, conflict-affected communities that... Nobody knows other than, you know, hearing that the LRA has killed people, abducted children, cut off people's mouth, and my work is primarily to support these poor and vulnerable people. I was wondering, said, really, do I deserve to be in the league of these great leaders like, uh, you know, Desmond Tutu, you know, Nelson Mandela, and, you know, Martin Luther King? And I was just humbled. I was so, so happy. But what was so important was I realized that even though I am deep far in northern Uganda where almost nobody knows it, I think justice speaks louder. And when you work for people, when you work to restore dignity for people who are vulnerable in the society, it will always be heard no matter how far or how hidden in unknown communities you are. I was just very blessed to find that, you know, I, I am nominated among those most prestigious leaders in the world.
0: I mean, so it's just been, a, just, I guess, a few weeks. Do you, has it affected your work at all? I mean, has, has it raised the profile of your organization? Like how, you know, the chances of winning, I, I'm on you know, Team Victor, um, but, you know, the, the effect of the nomination must be fairly profound, right? I mean, you're probably like the first Ugandan to ever been nominated, right? Ye-
1: yes, it's true. It's true. As soon as I got the nomination, within a week, I got a very profound endorsement from Archbishop Desmond Tutu who just immediately, uh, you know, called and said, I'm so happy with my son. My heart swells with pride and joy to find that my son in Africa who struggled, who suffered with his own, his own life, who've been working to help, the, you know, improve the life of the victims, have today been recognized worldwide. And what is very important here, my nomination or my organization's nomination, because I'm nominated jointly with my organization, the African Youth Initiative Network, it's, uh, it's an opportunity because it gives the profile of our work, but also it's a good opportunity, it's a good recognition for the victims of war, not only in Northern Uganda, but in Africa and world over. So often the victims of war and conflict affected populations are forgotten. People focused on the perpetrators. They give all the resources, all the attention on the people who have committed the atrocities, but not so much is paid attention, no. To the people who continues to suffer because of the barbaric act of this terrorist. And then yes, it's true that as soon as the nomination came in, it raised the profile of our work. I think it drew the attention. We needed that global attention nationally, people were surprised and you know within the government, I saw the Prime Minister was so happy, excited, Uganda's Prime Minister was very happy and said, We are fully behind you. We are so up about this. It's an opportunity to raise the profile of the people who have suffered the most. They deserve the attention. So yes, and I think Already there's so much interest coming around, but what I found it so profound was, the next day there was a newspaper headlines uh, that talked about that from IDP camps to the Nobel Peace Prize nominee. And this was the most empowering message that cut across the population of over 2 million people who suffered in Northern Uganda. It was debated over the radio stations across the region for weeks when we were talking about the young people, the youth and women and children who lived in the camp, were all wondering, said, if one of us who lived in this kind of life, who struggled, we saw this guy struggling here. We, we, we know, we have, we have seen how much he has helped people in this community. And today he's being recognized internationally. He's one of us. He lived like us, he worked with us, he suffered with us, and today we are seeing him being you know, recognized globally. And the message was, mm-hmm. Even though you lived in the IDP camp, even though you live as a refugee, you suffered, you're, you're displaced, you've been denied all the opportunities in life, not all hope is gone. You need to stand firm and continue doing your good work. Good intention will always take you, shape you, and take you to the platform that you deserve. So let's, so let's talk about that so journey, h- if
0: that's okay. Yeah. Um, because, yeah. you know, uh, you know I, I, I know a bit of this story, but I'm, I'm eager to learn uh, more about you. So, like where and when were you born?
1: I was born in 1981, on the 16th of September, 1981, in my little known community, village called Abia. Abia is in Lera district in northern Uganda. Abia is one of the communities in the north that has seen years and years of war. I was born in 1981, which was the year when a dictator, Idi Amin, was just removed from power, so there were a lot of pockets of conflict. There, you know, fighters going on, and then there were so many rebel groups. I was born on the peak of war, during the early moment when there were so many fightings going on. But soon after that, it became there was another guerrilla war to overthrow the government of Milton Obote, and then came the you know the NRM war, which led to the present government coming to power. There was uh, cattle rustling going on in the same community. Mm-hmm. There was Alice Laquena's Holy Spirit movement, abducting people, killing people in the communities, burning houses, and then came immediately the build-up on Lord Resistance Army, the LRA, that started abducting, killing people. So my life, I grew up in that community. What, what were your parents? What, were your well. parents
0: uh, working at the time? Uh, do you know your parents? Were, were they affected by this conflict?
1: Yeah, my parents uh, were the poorest and the most loving persons I had with me. They have never, they, you know, they have never worked for the government. They have never, they never been to school. They did not study. They are not educated. So, poor as they were, I think that's one of the reasons that we couldn't relocate to another district or to the city because we didn't have money uh, to relocate. We didn't have any money to buy food. So my parents were extremely poor and, you know, caught up in that environment where you can't dig. You're a peasant farmer. You survive on garden, on your agricultural activities, but you're denied opportunity year in, year out. You cannot dig. So in terms of raising us, I think the most difficult moment was my parents, like many other parents in that community, raising their children. In the community where you wake up in the morning with your mother not knowing what to cook and by, by lunchtime you still don't know what you're going to eat, and, you know, this is the kind of life I lived in. I grew up in the community where there was always insufficient food. And we, I grew up eating one meal a day for years and years. We suffered all sorts of malnutrition from quasico, from, you know, falling sick from all these tropical diseases, surviving from malaria to, you know, meningitis and all sorts of, you know, infections that could come in. So this is the community where I grew up in. My parents were too poor. We couldn't afford to relocate. And it came also the issues of studying. Other parents who could afford to relocate their children to study would take them to town. But for us, we didn't even have a bicycle. We, my parents couldn't afford to buy a pencil for us to go to school. So, so did, was,
0: you, did you have any, any formal
1: schooling uh, at an early age? Yes, I did. I did. Uh, I started primary one, uh, which I went for a year. And then primary two, I went for first term, which was only three months. And then we were displaced for five years without schooling. So, can you tell about that, that?
0: Like, how did that displacement occur?
1: Um, what what happened? Like, what are your memories it, of that? I remember so well when uh, we were in school, and sometimes there would be young as we were. I think I was six or six years or so. And then you could see people running from you know all of a sudden running from the classroom in any direction. The students, in one thousand students and above. And then the community members running with luggages everywhere, people running in all different directions. So this kept on happening. And there would be moments moment when we were sleeping in the house. You come, you know, the rebel come and attack the houses and burn the places, killing people in the communities. So all this kind of happened for too long. In the same way, we're not sleeping in the houses. You sleep in the bush in the night. You come and stay home for like two or three hours. Then you go back and hide in the bush. And this became like almost a normal life for months and months. And then people thought the best way was to leave that uh, place to relocate. And then we moved away. We walked, you know, like in in thousands of the family members were walking from the communities. We walked to another location where we settled there, but there was no food. And also what was so bad was Uganda's situation was so isolated that it didn't come to international community's attention. So there was no sort of any response, humanitarian response. People were surviving on their own. And all we did was to move away, to run away from our home. That became the battlefield. To relocate to another place, which was about uh, maybe 30 minutes drive from home. And then we stayed there for uh, years because home was not livable. And our parents, my, my mother used to fetch water for the government soldiers in exchange for the food, the daily food. So all this happened a lot for the years and all that. So I was affected. Education was completely cut off because... There was no school. We would always go like in the name of learning, in the, uh, studying in the learning centers at the refugee camp. But all we do is just to sit there and do nothing because there's no teacher. And you're just there for years and years. So all this became the trend of the life. And that was the process of the displacement. And our parents had to go and do the hard labor to earn food to eat for that day. And then as they go for another one for the next day, was the main sort of
0: rebel group at the time the the LRA? Were they the ones wreaking havoc that that caused your
1: displacement? It was combination of the uh, that time it wasn't LRA alone. The LRA was already there, but there was also pockets of the Holy spirit movement, and then there were massive cattle rustling. Mm-hmm.
0: You know, just, uh, just, you thieving, you know, just by common, just captain. common crooks, just trying to yeah. to loot and steal from people.
1: Yeah, they come across with guns, fully arms, taking properties, burning houses. Like no real political agenda,
0: people. just just no, trying no to take money. No, no real political agenda. Yeah.
1: Just just taking away the cattle from people and looting and killing people. Actually, so there were also other rebel groups going on because there was also another fight going on with uh, you know against the government, but also the government had come had just come to the to, to power. So they were trying to still establish their stronghold in that region, which did not support them. So there were so many sorts of rebel going on, uh, rebellion going on. There were so many rebel groups, and all these targeted the population, the innocent population. Both government troops and the rebel groups were looking for food from the local communities because the government was struggling with its own power. It hadn't yet established itself. So the support to the government team or the government soldiers was even not enough. And it's like people like your family are caught in the middle. Yeah, we were caught in the middle like any other families. Who were living in these communities, the little food we we, you know, my parents could grow from their gardens were all taken, were looted, houses were burned, and so many people were being killed actually. We saw our, you know, close relatives, close friends being killed, and all this happened for years.
0: So I guess it was in like this context that the Lord's Resistance Army grew, right? Like this is where they they kind of came from in this context of instability. Um What's your, I guess, understanding of how and why that group in, like, the 90s became so um, powerful?
1: I think, uh, first of all, the Lord's resistance army didn't have a political agenda. It was a spiritually motivated kind of rebellion, a tribal, you know, manufactured, uh, you know, religious, concentrated kind of war. That spreaded across. And then, on shortly, it started picking the pace because there were so many people who were frustrated with the government. So they were looking forward to any mobilization or any commitment towards fighting the central government. So they gained a bit of political support from some other people from within the, you know, the tribal communities. And then, uh, of course, there were so many other sorts of atrocities. But Lord Resistance I mean, army did not get support from majority of the local population. They only got support from the people who had been defeated, you know, in the other wars. So there were like so many remnants of rebel and soldiers who were looking for what to do. Mm -hmm. So they joined on with the LRA. And then what surprised people was, why would LRA not focus at overthrowing the government, but come to kill and destroy and loot and abduct young kids? People thought maybe they were taking young kids to be their soldiers, but also, why would you force the kids to rape their own parents, to kill their own parents? And then all the the, the, the way of you know atrocities by you know LRA became so unique in a, in a way that it kind of walking you know it it worked a different feeling, thinking in the minds of the people that these people seems not committed for political agenda. They are just here to destroy loot, and make sure they kill as many as they can. So, it took, it took not so long before they could spread, and I think the biggest mistake which was there was lack of protection for the local population. The LRA operated in northern Uganda without much intervention. People were struggling on their own. My mother would wonder, why did we not have to be protected by anybody, even though we knew the government had just come to power? It was already close to 10 years. And people were wondering, why would the government not protect the civilian population? This was the biggest concern. And also, we knew the government was struggling to fight so many rebel groups in the country. So they had so many challenges. But still, the LRA spreaded because of lack of meaningful protection of the civilian population. And, and can you, I guess, describe your
0: first encounter, direct encounter with the LRA? Do you remember when it was? Do you have like vivid memories of it? I, I probably imagine you would.
1: I uh, yes, I do. I I think I do remember very well. Actually, before the LRA, the the cattle rustlers, mm. the cattle rustlers, the Karamojong. One day in the morning, I think it was around seven thirty in the morning, when people. It was during dry season. It gets colder in the morning, so people got out and sat, set up fire, sort of campfire. To sit around and then as we are seated around the fire me and my twin brother jack we were the youngest and then all of a sudden we had a gunshot just above us and people took off we didn't know what to do and we just remained wondering what is wrong and we saw these people tall guys walking almost naked all carrying guns and running around and what happened our parents my mother came back and picked us and said, you're not going to kill my children. Uh, if I should do that, maybe you should kill me first. And then my mother came and picked us, me and my twin brother. And I think this, this rebel just pitied her and then later went. That was the, the initial encounter, you know, like one-on-one seeing what the re- rebellion was about. And then, then came around the issues of the LRA. The LRA incidents were, we could sleep in the house and from nowhere you hear people running outside. And then you ask what's wrong, you, you come out and you don't need to ask which direction people are running, just run in any direction. And you could hear people crying, people being shot, people being killed, and houses being set ablaze. So it would always come at night. But also during the daytime, sometimes when they are hiding in the bush, you could see them walking, the fleets of them walking. And of course we would be hiding away from them, but we saw them walking, but worst of all. Was sometimes you would play with your friends like you're playing, you know, football just a few minutes and then maybe an hour or two hours of separation. You come just to hear that the friends whom you are playing with are normal, they are taken or somehow they are, you know, they're abducted or they're killed. So these were like several encounters. There came a moment when war in northern Uganda became normal because it was you would know that I am next, probably. I have survived now. I don't know if I will survive tomorrow. The issue was about, will I be able to survive and see tomorrow? So there were so many encounters. You come and find houses burning, sometimes burning with human beings in. You can't get out to get out, you know, get that person in. And I think what we could see mostly was every next moment, there was serious atrocities of killing, abduction and, you know, torture and all that. You basically so, don't know, was,
0: like, what, you, you, you don't know, like, which of your friends you'll see tomorrow sort of thing, because someone yeah, would get yeah. abducted. And I, I know this yeah. is probably exceedingly difficult, but your brother was was a victim. Is that right? Yeah. Do you know my what what,
1: what t- happened? T- Do you know what happened? It was on the 9th of, uh, uh, actually, it was on the 8th of December, 2003, when my my brother and I uh, rode a bicycle home to, uh, to, our, to our home where you know the camp is to pick up some remaining few family properties, and then we reached home. Him and I were there, and my father was in the village, at home as well. So we spent a night in the same house, on the same bed actually. There was no bed; there was only a small mat. We we spent a night on that, and then in the morning when we woke up to come towards town, which was only twenty five minutes drive away from, but we were walking because we didn't have a bicycle either. But my brother said, the road is so insecure. There are so many rebel hotspots for you to take this stretch of 25 or 27 kilometers. There are so many rebel hotspots. So you wouldn't be encouraged to walk as people from the same family walking at the same time. Anything was possible, either a landmine or attacked or ambush or that. So my, fa- my brother and my father told me that you walk ahead with a friend, and with a cow, we were taking care of a cow. And then I'll follow you with a bicycle. So we walked ahead. And as soon as we passed the bridge, we saw the rebel we were like 300 meters away from us. They started chasing after us. We chased away the cows. We were running up and down. We, you know, We went, we kept on running ahead. We did not let the cows go, two cows. And then they came and they stopped at the bridge. They didn't want to keep running because they thought maybe the government soldiers would also see us. So someone had seen us being chased. And she went back and said, Those kids were being chased. They must have been taken by the rebel. And my brother was panicking, wondering if we were already taken. And also, we were also on the other side of the bridge, panicking if our brother was going to come and enter the ambush. So there was no phone, there was no road to cross and inform anyone. So my, my brother tried to come. The soldier stopped him and said, We are going to close the road for today until tomorrow. So at night, uh, the same bed which we spent the night in, in the same house, the rebel came and took my brother, who was 26 years old then, together with my cousin and other people who were living in other grass thatch houses. They came in, built in the camp in our homeland. So yes, it was it was taken on the 9th of December 2003, and up to now he has not come back. I tried to look for him. I I did all I could, but I couldn't establish his whereabouts. So that has been quite a a tragic moment because. I really, I was the last family member to see him and mm-hmm. I never got to see him again. He how left his family, he left his wife, he left, he left his children. They asked for him, but the question that we don't have the answer.
0: Like, how do you, I mean, emotionally process something like that? Some, some, just like a huge tragedy. I mean, how, what, like, what, what are you thinking? How, how do you, like, even to this day, come to terms with what happened?
1: I think... If my brother was alive and my cousin, if they were alive, they would have come back home. But I do hope to see them one day. We're looking forward to meeting them one day. So emotionally, it's been very challenging. I was one of the most angry, sad young men growing up, surviving every day, going some days without food, falling sick without treatment. Seeing your parents crying also because they can't raise food to, to feed you Mm -hmm. for that day, I was so traumatized. I was so angry, but I think I became a bit, a bit more, you know, manageable after when I started doing some work myself to help the people who had suffered. Well, this is what I want to ask
0: you: like, where, where, where does this? Does the roots of your activism, your your civic? Pride and, and the work you do on behalf of victims. I mean, was it kind of in that moment of, of losing your brother that that idea came, you know, sort of came hold?
1: I think, I think the, yes, abducting my brother also strengthened in me so much, putting me much so much pressure. You no, know, to help the families of the missing people, and I, you know, most of the families do have clothes of their missing family members with nothing to do with. My brother's wife still has the clothes for my brother, but she, can, she cannot let it go. She, cannot, she doesn't know what to do with And my father himself is one person who doesn't want to talk about the missing persons. He sees, every time he talked about anyone missing, he just sees my brother, and that is a problem. And in a way, when that happens, besides that, we we're already doing some work to help people. We thought the victim's need, the survivor's need was overwhelming from, you know, physical and emotional pains, the severe injuries that needed to be treated, whether it be physically or emotionally. So somehow, when my brother was abducted, I was so tortured. I was so defeated. And I knew he was going to come back. I was expecting him to come back the next week, the next month, months, weeks became months, months became years, and now it's over 10 years since he was last taken. But... I was, like I said, I was always so bitter and angry and wondering what would I have done better, what would I have done differently if I was a leader with the responsibility to protect the people, and how would I have used my position if I was anyone in any position of influence to reach out and share the, you know, the fate of the people who are caught up in conflict, because I knew we were suffering in Northern Uganda, but it was the most isolated situation internationally. People didn't know what was going on. People were dying, people were being killed every day. And each day I saw war continued, I could see hatreds among communities, among families, among ethnic tribes was widening. And it became like the internal ethnic finger pointing. Everyone looking at the ethnic tribe where the LRA commanders are coming from and blaming them. And these guys, these people are innocent. They're completely innocent, but you know, they also have no control. They're also equally the victims. And then that's why I thought the best thing to do is now to embark on doing something that will bring about meaningful change in the life of the people. Because we are talking about peace. How do we make peace and justice a reality for victims and the affected population became the question. And that's why we thought, other than talking about peace, which to many seems like a foreigner, seems who comes and goes the next day, how can we make this a reality to the people whose life has never be you know, has as never experienced any peace, and whose future is not known, and they, they don't know what it means to be in peace. And this is the kind of work that I started. I think my so, my how did you? Do, did you oh, so, so, what did you do
0: then? How did you act against that vision? What were your first, um, ways in which to you know start programs to help the victims uh, of the LRA? Like, what were your how, where, where did AYA net start?
1: Uh, I-net started in 2005, but even before 2005 I was already, one person was very focused on peace. I formed a peace club while in the, uh, the, the IDP camp and the purpose of forming the peace club in the IDP camp was to mobilize young people not to join armed forces. That was the number one thing. I did that because I saw my age mates voluntarily joining the auxiliary forces as home guards being trained as young as they are to hold guns, carry guns around to protect their communities. And there's so many young people who were taken to captivity, who were abducted and taken to captivity. Some of them were escaped and came back home. Found life so complicated. No food, you are under concentrated life and all those things. And people thought the best things to live in the captivity. And some of them were voluntarily going back to the bush. So the whole point was, how can we de-campaign, de-conflict the minds and the heart and the spirit of these people so that they get to see that we cannot count only on guns. We can change, we can live in peace, we can choose to be one. I knew even though we were suffering from all this, you know, conflict, we we were having a severe pain. We didn't need to be another source of pain. We wouldn't make any change in our community. So in 2005, when I just thought about it and said, I'm doing, I was doing some work with, you know, to do HIV awareness creation in the camp. But each day I went to talk about the HIV in the camp. People's story would change me. And people just told, our problem is not HIV. Our problem is the condition which is taking us to HIV. People are too poor to get money, to get food. So some of the commercial sex going on because people are looking for food. And you cannot change, you cannot prevent HIV when all the suffering is going on. So I thought, can I be maybe creative enough to start talking about peace, to start talking about hope in the future, to start talking about the rights of the people who are suffering as a result of war. So that's what we did. And we formed ourselves purposely to mobilize youth and communities in promoting peace and justice. And that was our take, our mission. And we thought our definition of peace should be something practical, not something in paper. Our definition of justice should be more than just legal prosecution. The question is, how can we take justice beyond a courtroom? That's what came in my mind. And then we started providing very intensive outreaches, reaching out to people, talking to them, telling them not to fight, telling them to choose peace, telling them to have hope and preferably advocate against the child soldiers recruitment. And then people would ask you, why are you talking about peace that you have never seen? Why are you de- campaigning young people from, you know, why are you motivating young people from protecting our community? Nobody's protecting us. And I knew if everybody only maintained the interest and the will for gun, war would never end because situation was worsening and all that. So that's why we formed the INET and we started helping more victims, providing more medical reconstructive surgeries. And date, we have supported over 5,000 victims who were sexually abused, those whose mouth, nose, lips, arms were cut off by the LRA. We provided reconstructive plastic surgery. Yeah, subjects. I remember when
0: we met in, uh, I guess, no, uh, November 2008, when we met for the first time, you were just in the middle of, of that process of bringing in plastic surgeons to help yes. victims who had been mutilated by the LRA. Yeah.
1: yeah. So from then, we, everybody... You know, there was a lot of funding in northern Uganda. There's so many international uh, NGOs right. who were present. Yeah, because at that point,
0: I mean, like, the the the, the horror the horrors of the LRA became, you know, kind of news yeah. in, in the United States, in Europe, and so the NGO community started pouring more resources yeah. in, into there, and, and I imagine it, that
1: probably helped your cause a bit. It came in a lot of funding for programs like that in northern Uganda. But, you know, the problem was... Uh, it was mainly humanitarian response, intervention and all that. But also, it became a source of raising funds for many international organizations. They could raise a lot of money in the name of Northern Uganda, but no money was reaching, not much was reaching the communities. So, you find, it, you could see NGO signposts everywhere. I'm very happy that they came and supported, but if all the resources that came to help communities in Northern Uganda reached out to the communities, life would have been much better. So, what we were doing was it is what was seen as the most expensive hectic you know stressful work supporting people who needs intensive surgical rehabilitation so not so much was our idea was not welcomed by so many there was money always fund for human rights but if you try to justify that we need to help people whose rights were violated nobody would buy that they would only go for supporting human rights conferences and we are saying make let us make right and peace and justice practical and of course I would see, whatever you help someone who who has been sexually abused to get treatment from obstetric fistula, that person's life changes, not only that person's life but also the family, the community, where the persons are coming from. So the work we were doing was very intensive, but bit by bit people kept on buying the ideas of focusing on the victims. And now, so, as I talk, it is something that has be- that eventually became a model that... We have done something to support the victims, and the result is always overwhelming, it's very convincing. And that's why the work now became our main focus, and we have supported over 5,000. We have been mobilizing Mm -hmm. people, and we continue. There are still tens of thousands of people who are living with retained bullets in their bodies.
0: So you have to tell me the story of the soccer game. Where did uh, the idea for the soccer game come? Because this, I think, is, is genius. Um, and I know it started with you. Just yeah. h- how did you get this idea? And, and you know, tell
1: people who don't know about the famous soccer game what the soccer game is all about. In 2010, when the ICC was having its first review conference in Kampala, it's so
0: like a really then, big, just, just to give people the, the, the context, the Review Conference is like a really big international conference where all state parties of the International Criminal Court come together to talk about the future of the court, its structure, its funding. So you'll have all these big international diplomats in one place. Yes, So yeah.
1: yes, yes. Thank you for that. Yes, yeah. it's true. That's what it is about. And how do we improve on the ICC's operation from different sections? And that was it. And then when we knew this conference was going to happen in Kampala, we thought it was a good idea to have it in Kampala. But the question was, where are the victims in the conference like this nature? And then we asked them in the preparatory meeting. They said, well, this is, uh, you know, the delegates diplomats conference. I don't think victims can come over here. Of course, you'd want to see. And then the first discussion we had with the key partners was, can we organize the people who are going to come to this conference to have initial visit to the communities three months or two months before they convene for the conference, which was bought and then the other question is, can we take victims to take part in the conference? And that was the question people were saying, this guy doesn't know law, doesn't understand anything. And they said, okay, fine. We are going to have an opportunity for identity and solidarity building. So we thought, can we organize the war victims conf- football game on the eve of the International Criminal Court Review Conference, a day before the court you know, review conference starts? And then we said, uh, yeah, we're going to do it. And we brought victims from Uganda, from Dafu, from West Africa, from you know Somalia, and most of other African countries. So we brought several victims. And then within Uganda, we brought people from all over the country and in the powerful Mandela International Stadium in Kampala. And then we invited the, all the delegations of the ICC member states. Hundreds of diplomats were here, ambassadors and all that. And we invited... Uganda's president, uh, President Museveni, together with the UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon, who all turned up and then they played football. And I think the purpose of playing football was how do we create a platform for the leaders to identify themselves with the people who have suffered and for for the leaders to understand the needs, the plight, for the people whom they're going to talk about the next day. And that's why we organized that let us have the conference a day before the entire conference uh, football a day before the conference start and when he did that it was the most overwhelming and people for once victims felt they were taken seriously and the conference attracted a lot of attention we got the best speeches from the president of Uganda and his commitment to supporting the victims the best speech from Ban Ki-moon was leading the diplomats to join the Uganda's delegation on playing and identifying themselves with the victims. But above all, victims felt that for once they were being taken seriously and people thought they also count. And you know, it eventually changed the debate. Upon the exposure, upon visiting the communities, upon playing football, people were discussing about the victims' issues, about the international criminal justice. Victims issue was the first agenda for discussion at the review conference, which we were very happy about because that was the old saying that we want to influence diplomats and politicians to focus their attention on the victims other than focusing always on the perpetrators, which was very successful.
0: I just, I mean, that's such a genius idea. I mean, just the simple act of like having a soccer game in which yeah. you know, Ban Ki-moon and Museveni play with, you know, victims of war crimes. I mean, it, one, it's empowering, but two... I mean, which is obviously your, your number one goal. But two, I mean, it's a really good kind of PR move to put pressure on the delegates to keep, you know, victims' rights front and center.
1: Yeah, yeah, that was it. That was the whole point, and we were very happy with the outcome. From then, I think it also changed our perceptions, and the only sense was, you know, just like us internationally, uh, everyone is equal in the eyes of the referee as everyone should be equal in the eyes of the law. Mm-hmm. Not that some people are more important than others when it comes to law. We just want to use the essence of the soccer where everybody is the same in front of the referee. And also that was the year when Africa was hosting the first World Cup ever. So it was such a coincidence. We really liked it so much.
0: So I also have to ask you uh, about your role in the demise of Save the Children. Um, and Pardon me, not Save the Children, Invisible Children.
1: Um, uh-huh, uh-huh.
0: And the Coney the 2012. So I remember, you know, I saw the video and I thought to myself, oh, this is kind of like ham handed, but maybe it'll do like a little good. Maybe it'll like help Americans, like put pressure on their government to do more to support the people of northern Uganda. And then I saw your yeah. Facebook post about it um, and I it totally changed my perspective of mm-hmm. um, the, the video and, and just like, you know, the total absence of Ugandan voices and victims voices. In yeah. uh, this this video, um, and then what? Just tell the story of how you organized the the screening of the video, and what happened during it.
1: Yeah, actually, uh, that was a very interesting moment because uh, when the when the news about the Cornet Twenty Twelve movie came in, it came in from a very mixed you know, directions, people were not informed, they were not knowing. Either people, were, some were saying Konya has come back or Konya will come back in 2012 or so many things. Uh. So when I read, when, when I did watch the movie, I did watch it four times before I could give my opinion. And then as soon as I watched it, I gave my opinion piece. And on the fact that, of course, yes, any campaign to bring attention to the, you know, the suffering of the people is welcomed, but it should be opportunity to amplify the voices of the people who have suffered. And then, it shouldn't be an opportunity to glorify what has led to the suffering. I think the 2012 movie, probably it had a good intention, but the way it was packaged was not well. The number one mistake was to say that let's make him famous, let's make Connie famous by buying his T-shirts, by putting on his dressing everywhere, making everybody know Connie. I think it sent a very strong message, a mixed message, not to the young people who suffered in conflict, Probably heard about the famous people in Africa: uh, Desmond Tutu, uh, Nelson Mandela, Kwame Nkrumah, and these are the kind of people that you'd want to inspire the young people to emulate, and because they're the the famous people, led you know huge amount of change in the the continent. But you don't want to mix the kind of fame of that nature to another types of LRA commander Joseph Kony. And I, mean, that I can see really, how it's so
0: deeply offensive to someone like you yeah, it and, was, and it others. Was amazing. Yeah.
1: It was massively offensive to say that, you know, when it comes to Africa, if, uh, you can mix famous people, include Connie, includes uh, Mandela, includes well, that is completely wrong. That is misleading the entire continent. And then, then came the issues of uh, reflecting, uh, you know, the, the truth on the ground. It didn't really reflect the truth on the ground. What was also so annoying, we don't want to glorify war. War has happened, and war is tragic. Nobody wants to see it again. But to make, you know, to inspire the young people that you can, you know, you can also kill people, you can also rape and abduct, and you'll be made famous. That is like you are raising, you are you are, you are inspiring many many coming to come, because these are the people who didn't know anything, but all they land is killing, raping, and all that. They saw it, they experienced it, and you don't want to tell them that you can also be famous by doing that. And then the other thing. Which was so annoying, the issues of the finances. So much money was raised in that kind of campaign, but where the money was going was a question mark. Of course, so, they were eloping one way or another, but people want to see that to whom do we account? We're not raising in a campaign because we want to account to the donors. So what inspired you to, to
0: organize a public showing of the, of the video? Like, how did that happen? And, and can you just like, kind of describe what happened during the showing?
1: Uh, <clears throat> what when we, when we gave our own perspective, we, we did uh, think that the best thing to do is to take the movie to the people, so that they can be part of the debate at a global level. So we went and organized the screening in the communities in Lira. The purpose was to do it in Lira and other districts. But as soon as we made people realize that the movie was going to be screened, the turn-up was a massive turn-up. There was thousands and thousands of people who turned up for watching the movie. When we screened it, people were very offensive with the first statement, let us make coin famous. That was the number one mistake uh, that came in so prominently. People said, okay, you cannot tell us to make coin famous. He's the guy that should not even be glorified. So, and the other thing was, uh, people felt that if it's the movie about Uganda, why are they not telling the actual story? There was no war going on in Uganda anymore. These were the clips that could have been worthwhile sharing in 2005, 2006, maybe 2004, but not, you know, 2012 when there was no war going on anymore. And then the other thing which was also very annoying to people was, if you want to, the one thing is people want to wear the T-shirts of their, you know, heroes, maybe their presidential candidates or their heroes and all that, but to wear the T-shirt with the name of Connie, with a picture of Connie. Then that is confusing, confusing completely, sending a wrong message to the young people that, you know, you can be famous. So the reaction was very, very vicious. People started throwing stones. And for us, the whole thing was, we knew the pains that movie, uh, the watching movie to thousands of people in Lira was representative enough of the community that would be equal offended in other communities. So we had to suspend Fadama screening because we had seen the, re- uh, the reaction when we had seen that the communities were effect- uh, you know, seriously offended and the campaign organizers didn't have opportunity to apologize to the people and we didn't want to keep reminding and rehating yeah. people. So it was of, completely hurting and was ca- very offensive. Yeah.
0: That's I mean that's that's incredible. So so that was a while ago now. You've done a lot of work since then. What uh you know in our last few minutes, like what's next for for you for your organization? I mean I know you have this this incredible nomination in front of you. What's the the day to day focus though of of your work today?
1: Uh, right now we are last year we got a uh, got informed by UNESCO called us and said INET my organization is now a, taking us a model African youth initiative promoting the culture of peace in the continent, so we need to look beyond Uganda. And and also, the government of Uganda came up with a transitional justice policy uh, which is aimed at building the national uh, platform for reconciliation, for reparation, for truth telling and all that. So over the last two years, we've been embarking more on mobilizing the victims' communities and identity, other than creating the tribal identity in the country, we need to identify Ourselves as a country, men and women who suffered together and who must heal together. So we have been involved in mobilizing the victims' population and their participation in, uh, you know, transitional justice uh, processes, and also ensuring that, much as we are trying to address our own needs, may we realize that Ugandans, even their child was killed in northern Uganda, that child belonged to international community. So the case cannot be isolated to the point that we deny justice. So we are saying. Can we take advantage of the existing mechanisms in place, including the International Criminal Court, arrest of LRA commander, to put pressure and make sure that we have, we throw in the most effective deterrent weight of the ICC prosecution so that no more atrocities of this nature is committed at will in the future. And then to also come back home at the national level, how can you create a prospect for national reconciliation in Uganda? So right now we are taking a lead move at the national level organizing victims' population throughout the country. Last year, we had the most powerful national victims' conference in Kampala, which brought nearly 300 victims from Uganda and from other nine other African countries. We had speech from Desmond Tutu, great leaders from, you know, ICTJ in New York and redress in London and many, many other key players within Africa here. From South Africa, we had a good experience who came in and addressed and shared with the people in Uganda. So I think we are playing a key role Our role is more focused on the poor people, the victims of war, the people whose voices are always ignored at best, and we want to amplify and prepare them to come forward. But also, most importantly, we want to strengthen the culture of international criminal justice. We have many mechanisms from international criminal justice, national judicial system, and the local traditional justice mechanism. So we want to support, use the ICC prosecution right now to initiate a vigorous dialogue, discussion around how do we move on from that to create a platform for national reconciliation. So we are a lot more engaged and also we are happy that the nomination has come at the most appropriate time. When we needed the voices, we needed the door, we needed to open doors. And now with the nomination coming in, at least the victims have come to international attention. And now not only victims in Uganda, we are happy that uh, we have seen the healing momentum, the healing power of our nomination alone to the affected communities. And also our story, like my story, represents the majority of the African population. So many African countries are caught up in war. And we want to make sure that as we move on as a continent, always focus on being on, you know, peacekeeping. Can we now embark more on a vigorous movement for peace building in the continent? Otherwise, we are going to see many young people who suffer like I did, mm. who might not choose my way, who might decide to maybe join ISIS, Boko Haram, Seleka, And young people are being taken as tools for injustice in the continent. We want to change that. They're the tools for peace, they're the tools for justice. And that's why we want to make sure that we use this opportunity, the nomination, to mobilize. And I'm seeing the momentum generated, the inspiration generated in the continent. Being the youngest, the first Ugandan, the youngest African, and the youngest black person ever in the history. I think that makes a lot of difference. And we are happy that, you know, from here we can trade on something, inspire young people to choose peace. We can build. We can make Africa a better place only if we look up to young people who are the, you know, the succeeding generation.
0: Uh, Victor, I wish you the best of luck with the nomination. I feel lucky that we were able to cross paths, I guess, like eight years ago, and and stay in touch and, and be friends. And I just want to yeah. wish you the best of luck. And yeah, uh, you know, I I encourage everyone who's listening to check out your work, and I'll, I'll post a link to your organization and and your Facebook profile. And yeah. let's just do this. Let's let's make it happen. You're, you're, this was inspiring. Thank you.
1: My pleasure. Thank you so much, and I appreciate it. And I want to tell everybody that we can do it in one way or another. Let us use whatever little you know uh, avenue we have to spread the information. Victims need the attention. The youth needs to be brought on peace building platform. They are not only tools for fighting. And the leaders who are listening to this, especially the African leaders, this complain that. You mobilise the poor, angry young men whom you did not provide them space for education to go and fight for you, yet you send your children to go and study overseas. This is wrong. This is not good. This is not a, a, a process of building the great continent we, are, we call home. Let's work together. Let's rethink. And even the young people who are also be- the beneficiaries of injustice, this is a moment that we need to reflect together as those who have also not benefited, those who have suffered from the injustice. We need to work together those who have benefited and those who have suffered from. The time is now. We can make Africa a better place. And I want to say thank you again, Mark, for giving me the platform. And God bless everybody. Amen, brother.
0: Hopefully, by the time you hear this, he will have won the Nobel Peace Prize. If not, and my guess is it's probably going to go to the U.N. Refugee Agency or have something to do with the refugee crisis in Europe. But if not, uh, you know that this prize will have been so well deserved by Victor Ochin. Anyway, thanks for listening. As always, go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to check out our archives, of which there are a robust number of these kinds of long form interviews that are pretty evergreen. You can listen to anytime, they aren't necessarily news pegged. And as always, please review the podcast on iTunes. It's very helpful to me and to others. All right, we'll see you next time. Bye.